Well, all of us go through suffering and hardships in this life, and one of the most difficult areas of suffering and hardships is when you and I have to either personally go through, you know, a sickness that can ultimately lead to death, or we watch a loved one, you know, who is sick, and, and we recognize that, you know, they're dying, and, you know, that is something that is extremely difficult, because oftentimes there's little that we personally can do to help them, because, you know, if they have the common cold, and, you know, they're just, you know, got a runny nose or a cough or whatever, we know, one, they're going to get better soon, and another thing, you know, there's lots of things that we can do to, to comfort them and to help them and to get them through that, but if they have, you know, terminal cancer or they have some, you know, horrible disease where we recognize, you know what, the likelihood is they could die, and there's really not much we can do, you know, to help in that situation, we feel, you know, just kind of in that place. Uh, of just, it's hard. It's, it's a very difficult place to be. Um, and when we're in that situation and we're watching a loved one who's really sick, you know, you typically will pray. And there's usually, uh, our prayer consists of two main things. First, we pray, Lord, heal our loved one. You know, that's what we want. We, we, we want a healing for the person that's going through the sickness, the suffering. And the second prayer is, heal them right now. You know, we don't want some delay. You know, I'm sure that none of us, you know, have prayed, Lord, could you please wait a while before healing my loved one? Or, you know, if you have, it's probably because it's not a loved one. Uh, but, or could you please allow their suffering to continue for a few more months or, or a few more years? No, we want it immediate. Lord, we want it now. Personally, we want it now for, you know, that person that we love. And, and, and that's typically how we address the Lord in our prayers. And, and there's two answers that God will often give that we don't want to hear. I mean, the answer that we want to hear is, yes, they're healed immediately. There you go. Go on with your day. That's what we want. But there are two answers that we don't like. We don't like no, and we don't like wait. You know, those are answers that we don't want to hear from God when we bring a request to him. We don't want him to reject it. We don't want him to say, no, I'm not going to do it. But we also don't want him to say, wait. Actually, in many respects, you know, we, we live in a culture that's very impatient. For many of us, wait is even worse than no. At least no is an answer that has a, you know, a finality to it, and I know that it's not going to happen and I can move on with my life, but, but wait, so now i got to just wait. I don't know what's going to happen. i got to be patient. What? I don't like that. And so you know, these are two answers that we really don't like when we bring a request to the Lord. And oftentimes when we get those answers, we're kind of like a child that gets those answers. You know, children don't like to be told no. They don't like to be told, wait. And oftentimes children, when they get those responses from their parents, you know, they'll throw tantrums and then they try to use kind of the manipulative words of, well, you don't love me. You know, you're saying no because you don't love me or you're not giving it to me now and you're making me wait till next week because you don't love me. When the opposite is true. I'm sure all of us as parents here have had our children tell us that. I know I have my children tell me that before. Oh, you don't love me because you say no. You don't love me because you told me wait. But we know as parents, usually the reason we're telling our kids no or wait is because we love them. We're saying no to protect them. No, that's not good for you. I know you want it, but it's not good for you. So no, because I love you. Or wait because there's something better coming and I love you. And that's why I'm giving you these responses. So when we're suffering or we're watching our loved ones suffer and we pray and God doesn't answer our prayer the way that we want with that yes, but instead chooses to say no or wait. When that happens, we can be like those kids, throwing a tantrum. And then we can do something even worse. We can conclude, you know what, because of this, God must not love me. 
You know, if he made me wait, if he said no, it's because he doesn't love me. And when we think that, it becomes very problematic in our relationship with God. Now we're going to see something here in John chapter 11, where there's people in this situation that I've been describing where they're suffering. And they have a loved one who is sick unto death and who's suffering. And they're going to bring requests to Jesus to meet that need. And it's going to be something that we're going to see that's going to be difficult because the answer that Jesus is going to give to them is not the one that I'm sure that they're hoping for. What we need to understand as we look at this story and in our own personal life is God is our Father. And just like we often tell our kids no or wait because we love them, he does that for us as well. So here we're going to see this family, a family that has two adult sisters by the name of Mary and Martha. They have an adult brother by the name of Lazarus. And they all live together. There's these three siblings living together in their adult life. And we see that Lazarus is really sick, a sickness that is ultimately killing him. And his sisters are in the horrible position of having to watch their brother go through this sickness, watch their brother ultimately dying in front of them. And there's nothing that they can do to make him better. And so their sisters are going to do the one thing that they can do, and that is ask Jesus for help. Our brother is in this circumstance. He's in this situation. It's beyond anything that we could do, anything that doctors can do. Jesus, you're our only hope. We're going to ask you to meet our brother's need. And what Jesus is going to do for them, one, isn't what they're expecting. And two, is going to be the greatest miracle that Jesus has done in his life up to this point. And it's really the, the greatest miracle besides his own personal resurrection that he does. But this chapter is just full of a lot of wonderful truths. And so we're not going to actually get to the, the climactic conclusion. Spoiler alert, Lazarus is going to be raised from the dead. We're, we're not going to get to there this week, but we are going to look at the first 16 verses. Because in these verses, we see five practical lessons about suffering. And since all of us have gone through suffering, and all of us will go through more suffering in the future, what we're going to look at this morning is very practical. It's very applicable to our lives. And we're going to see it in, in lives of people just like us, going through things that we go through and watching you know, how they deal with it and what we can learn from suffering. And so we're going to start here in John chapter 11 beginning at verse 1, which says this. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, the sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. So John tells us some things about Lazarus and about his family. The first important thing to note about Lazarus is he is sick. All right, now Lazarus is from Bethany, and we're told that he has two sisters, Mary and Martha. 
These are the Mary that comes and anoints Jesus' feet uh, with this fragrant perfume. We're actually going to see that next chapter, but the other Gospels are written before this one, so John is referencing this because this was something that people knew about Mary, that she did this. She wiped Jesus' feet with her hair. Uh, this great demonstration of love to Jesus. It's that same Mary and Martha. Remember when Jesus and the disciples come to their house and Martha's serving and she gets upset with Mary because Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus. It's like, why isn't Mary helping me serve everybody? These are the same Mary and Martha. This is that, that family. And I want you to note something most important about all of this is what we're told here in verse five. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. See, Jesus had this special love relationship with this family. You know, he's been to their home many times. He has this relationship of love where he's expressing love towards them. But it's not just a one-way relationship. They also love Jesus. We see that clearly demonstrated with what Mary does for Jesus in anointing him with this fragrant oil. And so they have this wonderful love relationship and this intimacy that Jesus has with them that not everyone got the privilege of having, but Jesus has it with this family. And so this family that Jesus loves has a brother that gets sick. We're going to see through this chapter that this sickness is quite severe, so severe that it's going to kill Lazarus. So here you have this family that Jesus loves and is close to a family that he spent a lot of time with. And here this family is suffering. Lazarus is personally suffering because he's going through this horrible sickness. And his sisters are suffering because they're watching their brother go through this. They're watching their brother die right before them, and there's nothing they can do to stop it. Well, this leads to the first practical lesson about suffering that I want us to note this morning. The Lord often allows those he loves to suffer. This kind of goes against, you know, the way in which we typically think. Well, if you love someone, surely you're not going to allow any suffering in their life. And so we sometimes conclude that, well, God loves me, and therefore my life should be suffering-free. There should be no difficulty or anything. I'm a child of God, so therefore I shouldn't have any suffering in my life. But that's not what we see here with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, who were clearly told Jesus loves. And it's not what we see throughout the Bible. I mean, throughout the Bible, we see all sorts of significant, important people. Every single one of the prophets, they suffered. You know, you look in the New Testament, every one of the disciples of Jesus, they suffered. Arguably the greatest missionary of all and church planner of all, Paul, he suffered, and he suffered greatly. And so this concept that, well, you know, I won't suffer because Jesus loves me is not something that we see taught in the Scripture. But you know what? Jesus himself. He became one of us, and guess what? God, who was perfect, who didn't deserve anything bad happening to him, what did he do? He suffered greater than any of us ever will. So when it comes to suffering, something we need to understand is that God allows it in our life. Being a follower of Jesus, being a child of God, that is not something that will remove suffering from your life. God often chooses to allow us to go through it, so we shouldn't be surprised. Don't be surprised when it happens. You should expect it. You know, we live in a fallen, sinful world, and there are consequences to living in this fallen, sinful world, and there's suffering that comes through. There's sickness that comes to us because of that reality, and we shouldn't be shocked by that. Because if we are, and I know believers who, who have this, you know, 
a misunderstanding that, you know, nothing should happen to them because, you know, they believe in Jesus. And all of a sudden when it does, it totally rocks their faith. It destroys their relationship with God because they believe the lie that, wait a second, I thought that when I put my trust in Jesus, I would never suffer again. But that is not what the Bible teaches. When you and I suffer, one of the first questions that often pops into our minds is why? And we want to know the answer why. Why am I suffering? Or why is my loved one suffering? Why are they going through this? Why has this not ended? Why, why, why? We have lots of why questions in our mind, and it's a natural thing to want to know why certain things are transpiring, especially when we're suffering. I'm sure there was those questions in Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Why is our brother sick? Or why am I sick unto death? Why is God allowing this in my life? Why has he not healed me? Well, Jesus shares one of the main reasons why. Why is Lazarus going through this? Why do his sisters have to experience this? Notice what we're told in verse 4. The sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And when he says the sickness is not unto death, he's not contradicting the fact that he's going to die. He realizes, I know what I'm going to do after. I know that his death is going to be short because I'm going to bring him back. But the ultimate reason why is, notice here, the glory of God. Lazarus is going through this. Mary and Martha have to suffer through this. And the ultimate main reason, the ultimate purpose that's going to come from this that's actually beneficial is that God will be glorified. And more specifically, the Son of God, Jesus himself, may be glorified through it. And we're going to see next week the great glorification of Jesus more than any time yet in his ministry because this miracle, as I mentioned, is so far beyond what anyone thought was possible, even those that he loved right here, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. When he raises Lazarus from the dead, the glory that he will receive will be far more than anything so far in his ministry. And people are going to, for the first time that hadn't yet, they're going to finally recognize he truly is who he claimed to be. He is the Messiah. He is God because only God could bring someone back from the dead. And so there is going to be great glory that's going to come to Jesus through this. And this is one of the reasons it's allowed by God because God knows this is going to bring him glory. Now, an important thing to note here, this is nice in hindsight to know that. But Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they don't know that in the midst of it. As they're suffering, as they're watching their brother go through this, they don't know he's going to be raised, and it's going to be so glorious, and Jesus is going to get great glory, and it's going to be amazing. And you know what? Let's just die and get this over with so we can get to that climactic point. No, they don't know what's coming. They don't know what's going to happen. They don't know the why they're going through this, which makes it so difficult for them. And it makes it difficult for us when, when we don't know the why of what we're going through. And this brings us to the second practical lesson about suffering that I want us to know. We don't always know the reason why we are suffering, but we should always seek to trust God in it. You know, typically we're like the Mary and Martha and Lazarus, where you're going through it, you don't like it, you're afraid to have it removed from you, you're asking for the healing, you want it now, and God is just making you wait. And you don't know why. Why is this still happening? Why am I still suffering or my loved one still suffering through this? We want that answer and sometimes we don't get it. Then we don't get it in the time that we want it. 
You know what? If you're dwelling on the why questions concerning your suffering, you're probably just going to make your suffering worse. I know that it is the way in my life. If I'm asking for questions that I'm not getting the answers to, it just kind of compounds the problem. It's already bad enough that I'm suffering, and now I don't have any clue of why, and I keep asking this question that I'm not getting an answer to, and maybe I should start asking a different question. And I think this is something that I found in my own life of, you know what, I'll ask the why, and if God chooses not to answer that, then I would recognize, you know what, he wants me to wait. And I just need to be content in that waiting, and I need to start asking some other questions that take my focus off of why I'm in this and why it's so horrible to be in this, Put my focus on, well, what's the value of this? What's the purpose of this? What can God do through this? Questions like, what can I learn from this suffering? How does God want to use this suffering in my life? Because once you start asking those questions, it really starts to change your perspective. It starts to change your focus from, oh, this is so horrible, and I can't believe I'm going through this. And we kind of have this pity party in the midst of the suffering. So, Lord, what are you wanting to teach me? How can I grow in the midst of this? I know it's hard, but I know that you're with me, and I know you'll get me through it. And as I'm going through it, I want to know what can you teach me and help me grow in so that when I get to the other side, I'm better off for it. And all of a sudden, when our focus changes, it actually makes the suffering easier. Because now I see some benefit to it, some purpose in it, because typically we think there's nothing good about suffering. Nobody wants it, but yet there is some benefit that can come from it because of what God can do through it. Now, as Mary and Martha and Lazarus are suffering with Lazarus' sickness, notice what we're told that Mary and Martha do, something that's very important for any of us to do in a circumstance like that. Verse 3, therefore the sister sent to Jesus saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. So when Mary and Martha are watching their brother go through this horrible sickness, go through this suffering, they're suffering with him, and there's nothing that they can practically do. I'm sure the doctors have come. I'm sure they've tried all that they can, and there's still this place where Lazarus is just slipping away. And now they say, you know what? There's one person that we need to, there's one person we need to let know about this Situation, And so they send a messenger to Jesus saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. And this brings us to the third practical lesson about suffering. When you're suffering, take your troubles to Jesus in prayer. When you are personally suffering or when you're watching a, a loved one suffer, you know, one of the best things that you can do for yourself or you can do for them is to take that situation to Jesus in prayer. Because the reality is, in most of those situations, we're kind of helpless. But there's not that much that we can do for ourselves or for that other person. But you know what? Jesus isn't helpless. He's all-powerful. Bring those things to him, recognizing he is the one who can help and has the power to help with your need. Let them know what you're going through. Now, I want you to note something important about the message here that Mary and Martha send to Jesus. Notice what they say. Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Notice that they don't appeal to Jesus based on something that's in Lazarus or something that's in themselves. They don't say, hey, behold, he loves you, Jesus, so you should come. Or we love you so much, Jesus, so you should come do this for us. Because of what we've done for you, Jesus, that should move you to come and do something for us. They don't appeal to Jesus based on their own merit, on their own, you know, whatever that they've done for Jesus. Notice it's based completely on what Jesus has done. Not their love for him, but they say, no, no, the one that you love, Jesus, 
We're appealing to you based off of your love for us, not on our love for you. And I think this is such an important perspective to have when we come to Jesus with our suffering, with our prayer request, recognizing, hey, you know what? I'm not, I'm not doing this because I have some great merit in me, because I deserve it from you. Because the bottom line is we don't deserve anything from God. We don't deserve his sacrifice on the cross. We don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve answers to prayer. But sometimes we convince ourselves we do. Hey, I read my Bible every day this week. I deserve an answer to prayer. You know, I, I tithe this week. I deserve an answer to prayer. I pray this amount of times. I've done this amount of good works. And we kind of convince ourselves sometimes that, you know what? I have earned an answer that I feel I should get from God. But the bottom line is, no, you don't. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. When God gives to us an answer to our request, it's all based on him, his grace, his mercy, his love. He does it because he's so good, not because we're so good. Now, right after Jesus received these two messages from Mary and Martha, we're told two things about Jesus that, in our mind, they just don't seem to go together. Like These two statements together just don't seem to make sense. Notice what they are in verses 5 and 6. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. But try to follow this here. We're told, okay, Jesus gets the message. This family that he loves so much, and this man that he loves so much, Lazarus, he's sick. He needs healing. Okay, he hears of the problem, of the suffering, of what they're going through. But notice we're also told Jesus loves Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And so we would think, well, the two things that would make sense is that he would immediately go and see them. But that's not what we're told, are we? We're told, oh, then he waits two more days. Now, I want you to think about this. Let's just picture yourself. I want you to think about the person that you love the most in this life. And if I were to come to you and I would tell you, hey, you know what? That person was just in a horrible automobile accident or that person has just contracted. They just found you know, some life-threatening disease in them and they're in critical condition and they're in the hospital and we don't know how much time they have left. How long would you wait before going to see them? I mean, if you really love them, I know it would be me. I'd be dropping everything I'm doing, and I'd be there as soon as possible. I don't know how much more time they have. And especially if I had the ability to do something to help them, I'd want to be there even quicker. I mean, that's kind of what we associate. If you, if you love them, you're not going to wait. You're going to go right away. But yet, that's not what we're told here. We're told that Jesus loves and he delays. And those two things in our mind just do not seem to go hand in hand. We think if Jesus loved them, he'd be there right away. You know what? We're wrong. The Bible's very clear. Jesus did love them. And even in his delay, his delay was out of love for them. I'm sure that was hard for them to understand. But he knew what he was about to do. He knew the situation Lazarus was in. They just thought Lazarus is sick. He knows, no, you're about to die. And I can tell you the moment it's going to happen. He's not unaware of the circumstances. He knows what's coming. He knows Lazarus is going to die, but he also knows, I am going to come. And when I do come, I am going to raise Lazarus from the dead, and it's going to be glorious. And he knew that in order for him to be able to raise Lazarus from the dead, he had to do something very difficult. I'm sure it wasn't easy for him to do. 
He had to allow Mary and Martha and Lazarus to suffer a few more days longer. He had them to go through probably the worst suffering that they're going to go through. They had to watch their brother die, and they were going to experience his death. And he knew that in order to raise Lazarus from the dead, he's got to first die. And in order for him to first die, I have to allow this family to go through this suffering in order to get to the place where the great glory of God is going to be shown in the resurrection. See, the answer that Mary and Magdalene, or Mary and Martha, sorry, got to their message was they had to wait. And I'm sure that's not the answer they wanted. That wasn't even the answer they could understand. I mean, try to put yourself in their situation. They were close to him. They saw his ministry firsthand. I mean, he was healing people left and right for years. I know he healed this guy and this guy and this guy and this guy and this person. And so I know he has the power. I know he has the willingness. I see him do it all the time. We're close to him. He loves us. Why isn't he here? We sent him a message a few days ago. Why hasn't he come? And each day, Lazarus is getting worse. And each day, Jesus hasn't shown up. And I'm sure this was just gut-wrenching for them of looking at, like, why are you not here? Jesus, why aren't you coming to heal our brother? Why are you delaying? And finally, Lazarus dies and still no Jesus. And I'm sure Mary and Martha are wondering why Jesus didn't in the time in which they thought that he should. And isn't that one of the big issues that we have with God when we're suffering? Isn't it hard when we ask for God's help and he doesn't answer in the time that we think he should? And we have our own timing. And this is the best timing, God. If you do it this way, then you're doing it right. And if you do it any other way, you're doing it wrong. Because we think our timing is right and our timing is best and our timing is the way in which God should move. But it brings us to our fourth practical lesson about suffering. God does not always work in our timing, but that does not mean he does not love us. Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. I keep bringing this up because I think it just is something that we have to recognize in all this circumstance. It just seems to be counterintuitive to us that he would love them and wait. He would love them and delay. But no, he truly did. And he delayed. And a delay was not a lack of love. It was just the fact that his timing was different than theirs. Jesus' delay was really out of love. He was going to demonstrate even more love through it. Because he knew they're going to see more of God's glory in him. He knew that they would see his power in a deeper way. He knew that it would deepen their trust in him, their faith in him, their relationship with him. He says, you know, out of love, I do this because I know the ultimate thing that's going to happen is far better than the temporal suffering that you're going to go through. Times of suffering, it's essential that we understand some important facts about time and perspective. Regarding time, we need to understand something that we can say as Christians, but I don't think we ultimately believe a lot of the time. And that is the fact that God is never late because his timing is always perfect. Well, it sounds good. We know that's what we should say as believers. Yes, God's never late. His timing's always perfect. But often we don't believe that. Often in our prayers, we're like, Lord, you're like a month late now or a week late or hours late. You know, why aren't you working within my timing? Because he doesn't. He has a different timetable. Than ours. It's calibrated to eternal importance and not just temporal importance. See, God sees far more than we do. 
We're only in the here and now. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know what his plan is. They didn't know Lazarus was going to rise from the dead because if they did, their perspective would have changed. They would have recognized the eternal importance of doing this, and all of a sudden the suffering would have been seen in that light. It would have been very different, but their suffering was seen in the temporal. All they see is, my brother's dying. I want you to do something. Why aren't you? And so we need to recognize there's a perspective beyond what we're seeing, then that God's timing is based on that eternal, not just the temporal. See, the human perspective just focuses on our immediate need. The godly perspective focuses on the ultimate welfare for you and for me. The human perspective focuses on our temporal good, where the godly perspective focuses on our eternal glory. A human perspective says this, you know, my will be done now. Where the godly perspective makes the request, and then patiently adds, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That was the perspective of Jesus as he was in the garden. And that's the perspective that we need to have. Of, yeah, I, I want these things. But it's not about my will being done, Lord. Ultimately, it's about yours. And if that means waiting, fine. If that means no, fine. I'm willing to accept whatever you bring because I want your will, and I trust that you love me in all of this. When Jesus looked at the suffering of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, he was ultimately focused on their ultimate welfare and eternal glory and what would bring the most glory to himself. And that's why he delays. His timing's different because he sees different things and has a value system that's different than many of ours. So when it comes to God's timing, we must be confident in his love for us because that's what's going to help us believe that his timing's best. That's what's going to help us believe that when he says wait or when he says no, that it's for our benefit. Because it's hard for us to believe that. No, I want yes. Wait, no, I want it now. And to really believe, no, he loves me. And so when he says that, he has my best interest in mind. And so I'm content in waiting because I trust in his love. I trust in what he'll do in my life through this. Joni Erickson Tata she had a diving accident. She's paralyzed from the neck down. She wrote a whole book about what she went through, and she writes this about her suffering. God engineered the circumstances. He used them to prove himself as well as my loyalty. Not everyone had this privilege. I felt there were only a few people God cared for in such a special way that he would trust them with this kind of experience. This understanding left me relaxed and comfortable as I relied on his love, exercising newly learned trust. I saw that my injury was not a tragedy, but a gift God was using to help conform me to the image of Christ, something that would mean my ultimate satisfaction, happiness, even joy. And what an amazing perspective. Here's a woman who has an accident. She's paralyzed from the neck down. I mean, if that happened to you, that happened to me, and we're going through the rest of our life in that circumstance, would this be what we can Would this be where we get to? And without knowing that God truly loves you, there's no way you come to that. There's no way you're satisfied in that because you have to know he loves you. So Jesus has gotten the news that Lazarus is sick. He waits two days, and now we're going to see what happens in verses 7 through 16. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. 
But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then the disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking a rest from sleep. And Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So the disciples, they're there. When the messenger comes and gives the message, Lazarus is sick, they hear it. They're kind of waiting to see Jesus. What are you going to do? A day goes by, Jesus doesn't go anywhere. Another day goes by, Jesus doesn't go anywhere. And they think, okay, good, Jesus isn't going to go. And they would say, good, Jesus isn't going to go, because they don't want to go where Lazarus is. And they express the reason why they don't want to go, because it's in Judea. Now remember, we ended last chapter in Judea, and Jesus left Judea, because what were they trying to do? They're trying to stone him to death. And so the disciples are, wait a second, we just left there. We're now 50 miles north because we want to be away from the religious leaders who are trying to kill you and then possibly us as well. So what are you talking about going back there? We thought you waited these two days because you weren't going to go, because it was too dangerous to go. And so they don't want to go to Judea because they think it's too dangerous for Jesus and for themselves. And that's where they say, Rabbi, lately the Jews thought to stone you, and you're going there again? <laughs> are you crazy? Well, what are you thinking going back there? I mean, don't you remember what just happened? They, they tried to kill you. Well, why would we even consider going there? And Jesus says to them, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, when the Jewish thought of that time, 12 hours in the day is speaking of the light, 12 hours in the night is speaking of the darkness. And Jesus is kind of using a figurative way to speak of the time allotted by the Father for him to do the work that the Father gave him to do. Jesus still had work to do. And nothing, not even the religious leaders who want his death, are going to keep him from fulfilling that work. And so he can go anywhere he wants in order to do the work that God had for him. Henry Alford, a commentator, writes this about what Jesus was trying to communicate. I have a fixed time during which to work, appointed me by my Father. During that time, I feel no danger. I walk in his light, even as the traveler in the light of this world by day. So after Jesus says this, he tells the disciple, hey, our friend Lazarus is asleep, and I go that I may wake him up. And the disciples are like, well, if he's asleep, then he'll get well. Why do we need to go there? Because they're thinking, hey, that's not a very good reason to go. I mean, there's death waiting, and if he's just sleeping, then he's going to get better, and there's no reason for you to go and heal him. And then they don't get the fact that when Jesus says he sleeps, he's not speaking about him sleeping. He's speaking about the fact that he is dead. Uh, and so the disciples don't want this. And so um, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but then I go to wake him up. Uh, then they're, you know, coming to this place and Jesus just tells them plainly, hey, he's dead. You know, they, they think you're, you're talking about him sleeping. You know, in the Bible, it's actually a nice thing when you see believers and reference to death. So often it's spoken of as sleep. Uh, but Jesus is speaking of Lazarus' death. They didn't get it. So finally, he just tells them plainly. Guys, I'm not talking about him taking a nap and getting up better. I'm talking about the fact that he is dead. But then Jesus goes on to say something. I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there that you may believe. He's not saying, oh, I'm glad Lazarus is dead. He's saying, I'm glad for your guys' sakes that I wasn't there to heal him. Well, why? 
Because when I do heal him by raising him from the dead, it is going to be so good for you. It is going to be so much of an important faith-building thing for you because pretty soon Jesus is going to die himself, and they're going to struggle with the reality that he will ever rise from the dead. But the fact that they have just seen him do it with Lazarus is going to be really helpful for them. And so he's like, you know what? I am glad for your guys' sakes that this wasn't there. And so notice we already noted that, hey, you know what? Jesus' delay was beneficial to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus because what it would bring. But now we see it was also beneficial to the disciples for what they would see in the midst of it. And when we get to the end of this chapter, we're going to see that it was beneficial for a lot of people because when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, many people come to believe in him and are saved for all eternity. And so what happens here, this delay is ultimately beneficial for so many people, especially all the people that are involved. Now, the disciples are probably thinking, well, if Lazarus is dead, what's the point of going and risking our lives? I mean, he's dead. He's gone. I mean, there's nothing you can do for him, Jesus. So why would we go to, I can get if he's sick and you want to heal him and you love him and you want to risk it for that. Okay, fair enough. But if he's dead, why would we risk this? Why would we go back into this area where the religious leaders want to kill us? You know, I'm sure that's their thinking. And Jesus says, nevertheless, let us go to him. Now, I know he's dead, but we're, we're still going, guys. That, that's not going to keep us from going back to the place where people just tried to stone me. And now Jesus is wanting them to come with him. Hey, guys, I, I want you. I realize what I'm asking. I realize where we're going. I realize who is waiting there for us. But I want you to join me, even though you might enter into suffering, you might enter into something hard, even possible your death. I want you to come and be willing to go with me. And notice how Thomas responds. Then Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. Yeah, I feel really bad for Thomas. Because anybody who hears Thomas, the first thing that they think is doubting Thomas. The one big mistake in Thomas's life is kind of stuck with him with everybody who ever reads the Bible. And we don't ever read anything else that says, well, actually, he did some good things as well. And this is one of those. Yes, he did doubt that Jesus was raised from the dead. And so, you know, there, there's some merit to that, you know, doubting Thomas, you know, thing. But notice here, we see courageous Thomas. No one ever talks about that. You know, why don't we call him courageous Thomas and, and look at one of the things he did so courageously? Because here he recognizes what could possibly happen. And he tells all the other guys, you know, what? let's go with him even if we're going to die with him. I realize that I could die and I'm still willing to go. I realize this is probably going to be the end for me, but I'm going to be with Jesus even if that is the, the end that I ultimately suffer. I'm willing to suffer with him regardless of what it brings. Now, I think another interesting thing that I read, we're called Thomas the Twin. But church tradition tells us that he had no actual twin brother or sister. And so the reason that they called him the twin was because he looked a lot like Jesus. And they actually said, you're kind of Jesus' physical-looking twin. And so and we don't know this for sure. This is kind of a, a church tradition. But if this is a reality that Thomas looked a lot like Jesus, guess who was the one who would be most in jeopardy going back to Judea? You know, hey, there he is. Let's kill him. No, I'm Thomas. You know I mean? No, because so he is the one who says, you know what? I'm going to go, and I might even be the one most likely to die because I look most like Jesus. But regardless if that's true or not, we see his willingness to do this, which brings about the fifth practical lesson about suffering. God often asks us to follow him to a place of suffering, and we must be willing to go no matter what the cost. 
Thomas and the rest of the disciples, they were willing to follow Jesus to a place that would ultimately bring possibly their death. And I want to pose that question to you. If Jesus said to you, you know what, I want you to follow me to your death. I want you to follow me into some amount of suffering. Would you say yes? Now, I find interesting when you look at statistics of Christianity in different portions of the world, there are places like China where Christians are greatly suffering in the Middle East, in North Korea. But then when we come here to America, the statistics are different because one of the biggest things that causes American Christians to stop following Jesus with the same kind of passion and fervor is suffering. Where in a lot of other countries, that suffering, they just keep going through it. But here, yeah, where a lot of us are kind of lightweights in that regard of like, you know what, if there's anything that's going to be hard, you know, count me out, Jesus. You know, I'm all for the blessings. I'm all for the good stuff. But anytime it's going to be hard, you know, then, you know, I'm not going to be doing that. And that, sadly, statistically, you know, that's one of the things that people have listed among American Christians that really keeps them from living for Jesus and following him because of, you know, fear of that suffering that might come. But if you're a devoted follower of Jesus, something we need to be ready for is to suffer. 2 Timothy 2.12 says, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. If you desire to be a godly Christ follower and you're living for God in a godless world, guess what? They don't like that. And oftentimes, you are going to suffer persecution because of living for Jesus. Now, the main thing I want you to note, if you haven't connected it with all these things that we've been sharing, all five of these lessons with suffering, is make sure you don't miss the connection that God loves you in it. When we suffer, you know, the enemy tries to convince us, God doesn't love you. How could you believe that God loves you after he allows you to go through that? After he allows your loved ones to suffer that way or to die or, you know, whatever it may be, there's this you know, voice that's coming. How could you believe that God loves you? Because the enemy wants us to believe God doesn't love us. And we need to recognize that for what it is. It's a lie. But it's a lie that we sometimes grab a hold. Yeah, you're right. If he really loved me, I wouldn't be going through that. If he really loved me, you know, he would have delivered me long ago. If he really loved me, he would say yes to all my prayers. We've got to be very careful not to make those false conclusions. You know, God loves us more than we can possibly imagine. And this is something that we need to understand. His love is not demonstrated in how many yeses he gives us when we pray. And I even hear people in their prayers say, Lord, show this person you love them by answering their prayer. That's not how God shows he loves us. He showed us he loved us at the cross. And if the cross is not enough for you, guess what? I don't care how many yeses you get, it's never going to be enough. If you can't look to what Jesus did on the cross and say, God loves me, it doesn't matter what he ever does from now on. It doesn't matter how many yeses or noes or waits he gives me. I am confident in his love because of what he did at the cross. That is the greatest demonstration of love. And he doesn't have to give you a yes to prove it. He's already proven it. And that's what we need to recognize. That's what we got to look to. The proof is there. Whether he answers your request the way you want to or not has no bearing on how much he loves you. It just has a bearing on what you desire in your temporal understanding versus what God wants to do with his eternal understanding. And sometimes we don't get it and we get frustrated, but we need to trust that he knows best and most importantly that he loves us. I want to finish by reading one of my favorite passages in the Bible, a passage that reveals that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And I think, you know, as you suffer, let this be a verse or verses that come to mind that just bring comfort to you. I'm just going to read it 
And then we're going to close in prayer, and I hope these words just bring you comfort as we end. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who is also to make intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written, for your sakes, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus.